If I were to poll the congregation this morning asking what are the big moments in the life of King David that you remember, no doubt the first we would hear is that David killed Goliath. But I would imagine very quickly thereafter, people would mention his sin with Bathsheba. Why do people remember this moment so distinctly? I mean, it seems colorful. Uh, It seems like a shocking narrative against the backdrop of the rest of David's life. I mean, this is sort of the steamy story that you would read in tabloids and romance novels. But while David's sin seems colorful, very colorful, it's actually depressingly ordinary. What happened to David is not somehow out of reach for any person in this room. What happened to David can happen to you. I've watched it happen in the lives of members of this church. Ordinary, unexciting, even stupid, one-off sin that's participated in casually and then wreaks absolute havoc in their lives. Mark it down. Sin will always find you out. The reason we remember this story is not the drama. It's not the sultriness. The reason we remember it is that it eats up David's life. One choice that he makes leads to event after event after event that almost undermines his kingship entirely. And if it hadn't been for the faithfulness of God to this faithless man, his kingship would have been undone altogether. We would have seen a repeat of Israel's previous king, Saul. So, between now and Advent... We're going to continue our journey once more in the story of the life of David, which we've been visiting each year for a couple of months, for a few years now. And my hope is that we will use David's failure as a case study, an example, so that we can learn from his mistakes and avoid the same kind of catastrophic failure. And today, we're going to learn something about desire. So if you have your your notes in the back of your worship guide or your little handout, here's your first blank. Every sin... And indeed, every choice begins with an interplay between three things, perception, attraction, and desire. Every sin and every choice is an interplay between these three things, perception, attraction, and desire. Have you ever thought about how you make decisions? I mean, you make choices every day. You've made choices already this morning. But have you ever wondered why you make the choices that you choose. Every choice you make, good or bad, comes back to an interplay between these three things, perception, attraction, and desire. Let me define my terms. What is perception? Perception happens any time we see, smell, hear, touch, taste, or even imagine something. So anytime you use your five senses, you are perceiving something, but I want to add imagination to that list as well. The imagination is a perceptive sense. In your mind, you can perceive things that are real. You can perceive things that are unreal. Let's try it. Maybe you'll need to close your eyes, cut off your your normal perceiving senses to imagine this. I want you right now to imagine in your mind the most delicious meal you could ever have. I want you to see it in your imagination. Can you see it? I want you to smell it, the most delicious meal you could, now taste it. You see, 
Your imagination is just as much a perceptive sense as your eyes or your nose or your mouth or your skin or anything else that you have. We perceive things with our five senses, but we can also perceive with our imagination. So that's the first element. In every decision that we make, perception. And in our text, David saw something. He saw Bathsheba with his eyes. He perceived her. But perception alone is not enough to make a decision. What's the second element in our decision-making process? It's desire. And what is that? Desire is a sense of need. It's not the need itself, but it's being aware that you have a need, wanting to meet that need. This can be bodily, emotional, psychological, relational, spiritual. The list goes on. So, So desire is not the need itself. It's sensing the need. So you're hungry and you realize it. You want to eat. That's desire. You're sad and you want to be happy. That's desire. You're lonely and you want to be loved. You want to be connected with people. That's desire. You don't know your purpose for existing and you want to know you're here. That's desire. Desire is not just a need. It is sensing that need. If you flip to the front of your worship guide, I've got a quote there from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian. And this is what he says about desire in his book, Temptation. He says, In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret, smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world of nature. Desire is dangerous. And everybody knows that. Unbelievers will tell you that. If you lived your life 100% of the time at response to your desires... We know that would not work out well for you. (laughs) Very quickly, it would not work out well for you. Every time you make a choice, though, you're dealing with your desires. In fact, when you make a choice, you're usually choosing between competing desires. Two different senses of need that you have. Which sense of need will you serve? So you want to sleep, but you also want to get up and exercise so you don't die of a heart attack, right? Which desire are you going to serve in that moment? You want to know and to be known. That's a sense of need that you have. But you're also afraid of what transparency might mean for you. What if people really know you? You've got to choose between those two senses of need. So which desire are you going to serve? Every time you make a choice, you're engaging with your desires. Now, where do perception and desire meet? They meet in the middle with attraction. Attraction is what brings these two things together. And what is attraction? Attraction is when an object perceived seems good to satisfy a desire. Very simple. You may think that I'm being very elementary this morning. I am. I'm trying to equip you to know yourself to help you think through your own decision-making so you don't find yourself in the same situation as David. So if attraction is when you perceive an object 
with your senses or your imagination. You perceive it, and that seems good to meet this need that I'm sensing. That, that's attraction. And attraction plays out in three ways as I can see it. So perception, attraction, and desire, they seem to interact in three different ways that I can tell. First, you perceive something you find attractive. Then a dormant desire is awakened. This is what appears to have happened with David. David wasn't burning with passion in his body. No, to use Bonhoeffer's language, his desire was slumbering in secret. He wasn't strolling around town looking for a hookup. No. Everything that happens in this text smells like a coincidence. Or to put it more correctly, it smells like the enemy has set a trap. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 11 once more. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. There's been a lot of ink spilled over these two pages. Should David have been at home, or should he have been out at war with the soldiers? Should Bathsheba have been bathing on top of her house or at this time of day? Or was it ignorant for her to, to do that? Or was it normal for the culture for her to do that? Perhaps she's flaunting her beauty for the king. When you look into the culture of that day, when you look at the text... There's nothing in this text that suggests David or Bathsheba are doing anything inappropriate or culturally inappropriate. It really seems like a bad coincidence. David unintentionally sees a beautiful woman bathing. She's attractive to him already. And when that happens, a dormant desire is awakened. As as, uh, Bonhoeffer says, a smoldering flame comes to bear in his flesh. So he wasn't feeling particularly needy of companionship or intimacy. There wasn't an active desire, but he perceived someone that he found attractive, and that desire was awakened. You've had this happen before. I've had this happen before. You know what is almost exactly halfway between the church and my house? McDonald's. I don't have to be hungry. It doesn't have to be breakfast, lunch, or dinner time. I don't have to have any active sense of advertisement. And let me tell you, I love a quarter pounder with cheese. What, what red-blooded American man doesn't like a quarter pounder with cheese? So I don't need to feel hunger. It's attractive to me any time of day. So I can perceive with my eyes an advertisement on their front window and a dormant desire is awakened. You know what? I could eat right now. You do this too. You do it at Target. You do it at Home Depot. Commercials get you too. You didn't even know you had a desire for that thing, but you perceive something attractive and that desire is suddenly awakened. It just grabs a hold of you. And then you have a choice to make. That's the first thing that happens. You perceive something attractive and a dormant desire is awakened. But there's another kind of decision point. It's, it's different from David's situation, but you face it nonetheless. So the second interplay between perception, attraction, and desire that I see is this. Where an active desire urges you toward an object that you already perceive as attractive. Okay? McDonald's again. 
I'm working in my office. <laughs> this is like a true story, unfortunately. It's 4.30 p.m. I'm working at the office, probably wrapping up with some emails. I'm starting to feel hungry. And I know Meg is making a delicious, healthy meal at home, but it might not be ready till 6 o'clock, especially if the kids are bad. It might be 6.30. I don't even have to drive past McDonald's and perceive with my eyes. I know it's there, and you know what? They have a value menu. And that dollar chicken sandwich, it ain't too bad. It's good enough. I don't have to see the ad. I don't have to see the golden arches. I can imagine it in my mind. I'm hungry first. And that desire urges me towards something that I already perceive as attractive. Now, that's where I've got to make a decision between wisdom and foolishness, right? So eating a chicken sandwich right before an awesome, healthy meal, that seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? And that choice would actually undermine a lot of other desires that I have. A desire to be healthy. A desire to honor my wife. But here we are at a decision point. I have an active desire that is urging me towards something that I'm already attracted to. You've been there too. A sense of need in your body, in your relationships, in your emotional life, in your spiritual life, in your psychological life. A sense of need overwhelms you, and so now you're living on the prowl. You are looking to have that need Met. You're looking, you're smelling, you're imagining what it might be that would satisfy that desire. So, with David, we see how perception is kind of the origination point for a decision, but desire can lead the way too. But there's a third interplay between these three elements that also brings us to a decision point where an active desire urges you toward an object that you previously perceived to not be attractive. A sense of need can be so great that you go after something that you previously didn't find attractive. So in seminary, I lived in a dorm with a number of Korean students. And they regularly ate kimchi, which is a spicy fermented cabbage dish. And they'd make it themselves. They just had these jars in their little mini fridges that stank up. If they opened their fridge, the whole room would smell terrible. And when they would eat it, in the common room, I just found it disgusting. The smell of it was just rotting cabbage. It was just repulsive to me. One, one day, one of these guys invited me to go to a Korean restaurant with him. And he said, well, you've got to try some kimchi. I didn't want to eat it. From a bodily perspective, I found it repulsive. I was not attracted to it. But socially, I had a different sense of need. I wanted to be polite. Two competing desires. And I gave into the social desire and I ate the kimchi. And literally... From the first bite I took, I was all in. Kimchi may smell bad to the uninitiated, but man, is it delicious. We had dinner with John and Amy maybe a year ago. John grew up in Korea, and he had some kimchi at the table, and I think I I, I disturbed Amy because I, like, housed, like, four or five servings of kimchi. I couldn't stop, right? Two things I want you to draw out of that. First, strong desires can change your attractions. So a starving man will eat a bug that he previously wouldn't have considered eating, right? In the same way, strong desires can shape our attractions toward things that we previously didn't find attractive. Likewise, satisfying desires can create new or stronger desires, right? Anybody who's ever struggled with addiction will tell you that it's a self-perpetuating problem. You give in to it, the sense of need becomes greater. 
And when we satisfy our desires, it regularly makes those desires worse in the long run. Now, I'm constantly wanting kimchi. And when I go to Rouse's, I can't walk through the produce section without at least pausing and checking the price of kimchi to see if it's on sale. They do sell it at Rouse's. It's fantastic. Try it. We see all this playing out with David. He satisfies a physical desire. Does it fix anything for him? No. It actually leads to a whole different set of desires that he's got to deal with now. Now he has to save face, right? Now he's got to protect his reputation. One choice starts a domino effect of desires. So I'm trying to help you to think through the way you make decisions. Virtuous decisions, sinful decisions, and decisions of debatable value. Every time you make a choice, there's an interplay between perception, attraction, and desire. Sometimes multiple desires at once. Listen to how James, the brother of Jesus, put it. He said, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So you have perception. You have your senses and your imagination. You have attraction, but desire seems to be the sticky wicket in this scenario. Perception and attraction have an impact, and we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk a lot about perception, but desire, that's where it gets most complicated. So what do you need to learn about yourself in response to all this moral philosophy we've been discussing this morning? Satisfying ordinary desires thoughtlessly can lead to lots of unintended consequences. David wasn't thinking, or at the very least, he wasn't thinking well. And this morning and in the weeks ahead, I'm going to be challenging you to think differently. When God made you, he didn't just create a bundle of nerves. He didn't just make a bundle of feelings and desires. You're not just a gut, a wanting, desiring thing. God gave you a gut. God gave you desires, but he also gave you a brain. And your brain is actually key to restraining and retraining your your gut, your desire, your hungers. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, reason in man must rule the mere appetites. The head rules the belly. You can cheat and go read The Abolition of Man and take you about an hour and a half and see where it gets filled in. We're going to be filling this quote in over like the next three weeks. This is where we're starting. Reason in man must rule the mere appetites. The head rules the body. So God gives people a brain to restrain our desires and to redirect our desires. The Greek word repentance literally means a change of mind. We have to think differently about whom we serve and how we live because the gospel is this truth. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord of everything. And if he's Lord of everything, that means he's Lord of my life. I'm tempted, Henry, to pull your little newspaper out. I'm not going to do it, though. Or maybe I will. Why not? This sermon's short, so I'll I'll kill some time. You you don't have anywhere to be. Uh, The great little uh, advertisement in the paper today says, I'm secular, and I vote. So it's, uh, it's encouraging you to vote as a secularist. And it says, keep religion out of government and social policy. I might actually agree with some of these things at some level. Keep religion out of public schools. This is the one I like, though. Keep religion out of bedrooms, personal lives, and healthcare decisions, including when or whether to have children, whom to love or marry. Uh, this is the stuff about tax dollars. Jesus is Lord, which means he's Lord of your personal life. Jesus is Lord of, of every decision that you make. 
And so as a Christian, repentance means thinking differently. What I feel and what I want are not necessarily the thing you were made for. It's not necessarily the thing that is good for you. And so we are called to think differently. So when we're faced with these different competing desires, these things that we find attractive, we need to think. We need to think before we satisfy our desires. Why? Because our choices are important. They impact our lives. They impact the people around us. And they impact the name of Christ. How you live matters, which means your choices matter. So, how do you need to think differently? What parts of your life have become sort of an automatic following of the gut, an automatic following of the desires without considering what you're giving up, what you're losing, and how often have your choices actually enslaved you to your desires? The gospel calls us to a freedom from the domination of the flesh. The desires are not our king anymore. Jesus is king. But how do we overcome those fleshly desires? How do we think differently? What can be done? Well, we're going to start unpacking that in the next couple of weeks as we dig deeper into this tragedy of sin in the life of David, hoping to avoid the same in each of our lives. Unlike David, we need to think before we satisfy our desires. Let's pray. God, every one of us has desires that are not what you made us for. Every one of us have desires that were we to live according to them, were we to fulfill them with the things that seem attractive to us, it would be bad for us, bad for our families, bad for the world, and bad for your name. So, Father, teach us to think differently with every decision that we make so that we are pausing and saying, what does it look like in this choice to have Christ as Lord? Our lives do not belong to us. Our lives belong to you. So help us, Lord, to live in submission to your kingship every day of our lives, every choice of our lives. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.